Isaiah is on the now the tail end of his prayer. It's kind of a lament. Uh, it's a prayer of lament. It started way back in chapter 63 and verse 7, and it continues through all of chapter 64. Uh, it's prompted by his present moment circumstances. It's prompted by his discouraging uh, circumstances or present moment difficulties. Um, Isaiah, in, as he's recording this vision, is discovering all these wonderful promises that the Lord is making to his people. This wonderful plan of salvation that is going to be, uh, it's going to completely redeem Jacob, Israel. It's going to be extended to the, to the far off places, the islands. No matter how far away you want to go, what God is going to do, what the Lord is going to do, is going to reverberate in all of God's creation. But his present moment difficulties and circumstances don't really speak to that. And Isaiah is struggling, or he's having a hard time uh, between where he's at and where he knows God is going to go, what God is going to do, how he's going to wrap it all up. But where he's at is hard. This is a common feature among God's people. It's Old Testament, it's New Testament. John the Baptist would be a good example of somebody else in the New Testament uh, that struggled with the same thing. He's the one who, who recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who testified that I baptize you with water, but, but the one coming after me is greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Wonderful things. But then John the Baptist gets thrown in prison by King Herod. And things aren't looking good. And John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus. Are you the coming one? Or are we supposed to look for another? His, his present moment difficulties and discouraging circumstances don't seem to fit with what he knows must take place because Messiah has come. And so he struggles with that. It's not hard to see to move from John the Baptist to move to the church. The church has promised wonderful things. Uh, Christ said the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. But sometimes it looks like it does. Sometimes Christians are martyred and they're arrested and they're beheaded. Sometimes Christians lose freedoms and liberties. Christ talked about, I've overcome the world, but he also said in this world you're going to have trouble. And in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talked about end-of-the-age trauma and, and difficulties and birth pains and, and tribulation. And so those are, those are things that don't seem to fit exactly with how we know it's going to end up. Sometimes it's hard right where you're at. And so, for the church, for John the Baptist, for Isaiah, God's people are called to wait patiently, to live by faith, and to trust. When it's all said and done, it doesn't require faith. It doesn't require hope. But in those present circumstances, it does require waiting patiently, resting on God's promises, leaning not upon your own understanding. Jesus sent word back to John the Baptist with a special beatitude, which I think still applies. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus recognizes there are going to be times in your life where, where you're struggling and you just have to trust and wait. And he says, 
Blessed are you if you're not offended by my plan, by what I'm doing, by my timetable, by how I choose to orchestrate events to accomplish all of my good purposes. It's a wonderful promise. But it can still be hard to receive and live in that moment of personal struggle, whatever that looks like. One of the key differences between Isaiah's waiting and the church's waiting, and there is a key difference, because the church is told to wait, watch and pray. Isaiah is told to watch and pray. But one of the key differences is that we live uh, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. We have so much more given to us, including the Holy Spirit poured out upon his church. We've got all those advantages that Isaiah did not have. It doesn't mean he was left high and dry. He had nothing. But compared to what the church has been given, we have so much more. Isaiah is living 700 years before Jesus is ever born. So it'll be 730 some years before he dies on a, or roughly 730 years before he dies on a cross and is resurrected. So Isaiah's living in a little bit more difficult time and Isaiah knows if Christ or if the Lord God fulfills all of his promises to Israel, just like he's writing, just like he's seen and, and recording, if he fulfills all those, if, if he actually interjects himself into our world and we need him to do that, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah's concerned because he knows that they're a sinful people and they're not really ready for that. They're not really ready for that. They're not ready for what's called the day of the Lord. So I want to define that term. We've defined it over the years. It's a, uh, it's a dominant theme in all of Scripture. It's not used really all that often. It's not like it recur, occurs hundreds of times. But it is a dominant theme that guides God's plan and purposes of redemption and judgment. So let me define the term for you, and then we'll go back and apply it to Isaiah chapter 64. The day of the Lord. I'm going to start with Erdman's Bible Dictionary, and I'm going to show you several definitions. This isn't the entire definition. Uh, Most Bible dictionaries have two, three, four paragraphs or so. I'm not going to show all of that. I'm going to show, uh, I think, is the key part, especially for our purposes in Isaiah. So Erdman's Bible Dictionary defines the day of the Lord, I think, best... It reads this way. The time of the decisive visitation of the Lord when he intervenes to punish the wicked, deliver and exalt the faithful remnant who worship him, and establish his own rule. Both judgment and salvation are especially prominent aspects in the day of the Lord. A shorter definition would be from Tyndale Bible Dictionary. The expression used by Old Testament prophets to signify a time in which God actively intervenes in history, primarily for judgment. And then the Holman Bible Dictionary. The day of the Lord is thus a point in time in which God displays his sovereign initiative to reveal his control of history, of time, of his people, and of all people. That's the day of the Lord. So, to summarize that, four points, I think Erdman's does best of capturing this. To summarize, the day of the Lord is a time of divine visitation and intervention. God interjects himself into the affairs of not only his people, but all people. Secondly, 
It's a time both of judgment and deliverance. Judgment and salvation. Thirdly, it's a sudden climactic event. I think uh, Erdman said decisive. That's a good word. It's a decisive. It's not an extended period of time. It's sudden. It's decisive. It's a game changer. The Assyrian army was, sl- was slain outside the walls of Jerusalem in one night. That was a type of the day of the Lord. Israel was saved. The Assyrians were judged. And then lastly, I would say it's identified variously in Scripture. It goes by different names. I think it's all referring to the same concept of the day of the Lord. It's called the day of Christ Jesus in Philippians the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in Corinthians, the day of Christ, again in Philippians. It's called a day of judgment in 1 John. It's called in Thessalonians, this day. It's, it's distinguished from other days. This day is a time of divine visitation, of judgment and deliverance. It's, it's decisive. That day in 2 Timothy, and in Romans it's called a day of wrath. So with all those things in mind about the day of the Lord, let's apply it to Isaiah chapter 64. We did the first four and a half verses last week. Let me reread those. Isaiah, in his prayer, says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. Stop, because that's where the verse ought to end. The first part of verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. That's a, a concept that's not exclusive to the Old Testament. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches as well. Paul taught exactly that in Romans chapter 2. There are... Uh, Without sounding heretical, heretical, there are two ways to be righteous before God. One is to joyfully work righteousness and remember God in his ways. And the other is faith in Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 2. Speaking of the Lord, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those are the two aspects of the day of the Lord. There's wrath and fury, and there's eternal life and immortality. He goes on, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, I'll put the key part on top and add a little. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also for the Greek. God shows no partiality. But there's only one little problem with this equation. Or this way to, to the Lord. And Isaiah knows what the problem is. 
And the problem is, there isn't anybody who works righteousness. Just like Paul knows, there's nobody who, by patience, is well-doing and seeking for glory and honor and immortality. There's nobody like that. There's nobody who does good, whether he's Jew or Greek. That's the problem. And Isaiah knows that's the problem. And it seems like an insurmountable problem from Isaiah's vantage point. The next words out of Isaiah's mouth are, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time and shall we be saved. So, yes, it's true. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, but that's not us. And so if the Lord rends the heavens and comes down like Isaiah's kind of imagining... It's not going to result in Israel's salvation. It's going to result in their judgment, destruction, God's wrath. Because that's not who they are. It's interesting, and the second part of verse 5 is such an interesting verse. But it starts off with, Isaiah puts himself in that category. He doesn't say, they are sinful people. The other Israelites are sinful people. The majority of Israel is sinful. He says, we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? Which is fitting with what Isaiah says in his original call in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah has this, this encounter from kind of a afar. It's not entirely clear. But Isaiah says, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Not, woe is them. Why, if they were to see this God, it would destroy them. Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a sinner, just like everybody else. Isaiah can't say that he joyfully works righteousness and remembers the Lord in all of his ways. That's a problem for Isaiah, too. So it starts with that problem. Now, however bad you think the second part of verse 5 is, it's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. What's being communicated in that second part of verse 5, this awareness that Isaiah has, which is why he's crying out, why it's a lament, why he's struggling, is kind of obscured. It's obscured by our translations are kind of clunky. And I'm not saying they completely muffed it, but to varying degrees... They mostly communicate not exactly what Isaiah means to say. Uh, I tried to find one that I thought really captured it, and I found them all kind of unsatisfying on some level. And it's partly our, our way of reading, not so much the way sometimes that it's translated, though again, there's varying degrees. Let me show you the second part of verse 5. The main points are really pretty simple. The main points are, the Lord is angry... And we sinned. I mean, that's the main idea. The Lord is angry, we sinned. And and the way that I probably read this until I studied it out this week better, the way I read it is probably the way you read it, is we sinned, God's angry. Uh, But there's something worse being communicated than we sinned and God is angry. Though that's a true statement. When we sin, apart from Christ, God is angry. Uh, God cannot... Be pleased by sin. God is too pure than to even look upon sin. So it's, it's certainly true. When people outside of Christ sin, God is angry. Now, in Christ, he's grieved. If you're a Christian, 
We grieve God. We grieve His Spirit when we sin. But outside of Christ, it's just He's just flat angry. There's a, an author that John likes. My son John, when he comes here, he frequently quotes this guy. He's very scholarly. And John, John's very scholarly, so he likes him. Alec uh, Matir, his commentary on Isaiah says this about this second part of verse 5. Alec Matir says, Isaiah is not explaining God's wrath. Rather, he is exposing Israel's aggravated offense. This isn't a verse about God's wrath. It's a verse about their sin. What he's saying is, you were angry, and in, in the Hebrew, it's a perfect tense. It's a settled anger. It's, it's God has a ra- God's not going to lower his standards. All right? So this isn't a parent situation where a parent tells the child, uh, and the child says, you know, can I have a, can I have dessert? And the parent's like, look, you got to eat your dinner. You got to clean up your plate. If you clean up your plate, you can have dinner. And, and they don't want to clean up their plate. And you're like, okay, eat half of it and you can have dessert. Uh, all right, just take a bite. Well, you just try a bite. And if you try a bite, if you at least try a bite and eat the one part you do like, then you can have dessert. God isn't going to do that. The Lord's anger is a settled anger. It's not going to change. He's not going to tone it down. He's not going to lower the standard. That's very clear from that verse, by the tense of verb that's used there. What's also very clear is this imperfect verb, they're not going to stop sinning. God's not going to change his standard, and Isaiah knows we're not going to stop sinning. We're going to keep on doing it. And the relationship between the two is not we sinned and you're angry. The relationship that's being communicated is we know God's angry. Look at how he's judged us in history. We know it and we continue to do what offends him. It's like a child that knows exactly what is expected of them. The rule was communicated very clearly with the penalty. And the child says, I don't care what you've told me. I'm going to do it my way. That's Israel. That's why there's a behold there, which is kind of an alarm I mean, this is something that doesn't make sense, or it's, 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 a, it's for effect. It's not, behold, God is angry at sin. There's no surprise in that. Of course God is angry at sin. What is surprising is, we know He's angry at sin, and we keep sinning. Behold, what in the world is happening here? Which is why Isaiah says, and shall we be saved? You've got the Lord who is not going to lower His standard... You've got Israel, including Isaiah, and they're not going to stop sinning. Shall we be saved? That's a good question. Shall we be saved? Verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's a description of the thoroughness of sin. Uh, theologians call it total depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity does not mean you're as bad a sinner as you could be. Total depravity means that sin has affected every aspect of your being. There is nothing that is you that has not been adversely affected by sin. You could be worse, 
but by the mercy and the restraint of God, you're not as bad as you could be. Isaiah, in verse 6, uses lots of imagery. Like one who is unclean. Like a polluted garment. Like a leaf. Like the wind. Starts off like, a, like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Spurgeon preaches a message on that. And he says, can you imagine? Because it doesn't say what we want it to say or maybe even like we read it saying or what we're willing to admit. What we're willing to admit is we've all become like one who is unclean and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. If our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, what must our unrighteous deeds be like? See, we may, oh, we're, we're, I'm okay with admitting when, I've, when it's pretty plain and obvious, I say that now, there's times I can be, uh, I, I can admit that I failed, I've done something wrong. But Isaiah is saying, even our righteous deeds, the ba- our prayers, our fastings, our going to the temple to worship, our reading of scripture, all of our best righteousness is like a polluted garment before God. So long as we think it's our, our righteous deeds that gain the relationship, that prepare us for the day of the Lord when he comes down. He says we fade like a leaf. I think uh, a leaf is a good image because a leaf in spring seems so promising. It seems so hopeful. It speaks of life and all the wonderful things that we like about spring and warmer weather. And then you've got summer and then you've got fall where there's even a blaze of glory. But leaves always wind up the same place. They wind up withered and cast by the wind and decayed, cut off from life. Isaiah recognizes we're cut off from God's life, the life of God, what we need most of all. We're like a leaf. We perish. And maybe you're in a a time of life where your leaf's looking pretty good, but I guarantee you, your leaf is going to fall from that tree. And it's going to decay just like every other leaf has ever decayed. And like the wind, it takes us away. There's a saying that's attributed to no one. Nobody knows, I don't think, who said it, though it's been quoted lots of times. The saying says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's a true statement. If you think about your own sin, if I think about my sin, it takes me farther than I want to go, it keeps me longer than I want to stay, and it's going to cost me more than I imagined. That's what sin does. It's like the wind that takes you away. And you think you're in control, but you're never in control of sin. Sin's in control of you. And Isaiah recognizes this this thorough corruption, which leads him to cry out in this prayer. Verse 7, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Two main thoughts, I think, out of verse 7. Isaiah emphasizes the fact no one's calling, no one's rousing. Now, on one hand, it's interesting because Isaiah right now is calling. He's engaged in a prayer where he's calling out to the Lord. But that's only evidence of God's grace in his life. Because Isaiah recognizes, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. And left to myself, I'm not seeking either. The fact that Isaiah, on any level, is even praying this prayer is evidence of the grace of God in his life. 
And the Lord is using him to cry out this prayer that we also benefit from. Isaiah says, no one's calling. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans as well. All are unrighteous. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Nobody left to themselves. And yet we know some people do call out to God, which again is evidence of grace, not of our merit. It's not Isaiah has got something figured out that all the rest of Israel somehow just can't see. Isaiah's no smarter. He's no brighter. He doesn't have a better uh, upbringing. Isaiah's a sinner just like they are. So left to ourselves, no one's calling, no one rouses himself. That's a word that oftentimes is uh, translated awaken. No one's, no one's waking up all by themselves. Uh, Lazarus isn't coming out of the tomb all by himself. The words used, if we had all the time in the world, I'd spend more time looking at how the words used in Isaiah because the Lord in Isaiah rouses up the Assyrians. He rouses up or awakens Cyrus. He rouses up not just among his people, but among all the nations of the earth to accomplish his own purposes. The Lord awakens people and places and nations to accomplish his purposes. But nobody among sinners rouses himself to seek after God. So the question, this is all in light of the question, is shall we be saved? Like Isaiah's not sugarcoating it. This is the truth about us. This is the truth about sinners. And so the question stands, shall we be saved under these circumstances? Verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Starts off with but now. A lot of Bible translations use but now. Some use the word yet. But now is clearly the better translation. The word in the Hebrew contains both concepts. It's a sharp contrast with what Isaiah just described. But, in spite of all that depravity, in spite of the thoroughness of sin, but, now. Yet captures the contrast, but it doesn't capture the immediacy of what's happening. And it's included. Because Isaiah's appeal is not just, uh, but the Lord one day is going to do something, it's but Now, right now, given our situation, given our circumstances, given our sin, but now, the fact of the matter is, you're our Father. You're our Father. This relationship is a a family-type relationship. It's not a business relationship. It's not just an objective, distant, contractual relationship. You're our Father. You know, sometimes... I don't know, sometimes I think Christians, from what I've read, get the idea that, that God being Father is a New Testament concept. That when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, they're like, who calls God their Father? Isaiah was calling God Father back in 64. It's an old concept. Jesus developed it. But Isaiah says, God, Lord, you're our Father. It's kind of, there's, there's kind of a hint of uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the father with the two sons, and the one son comes to himself by the grace of God, living with the pigs, and he goes back to his father. 
He goes back thinking, recognizing, admitting, I'm thoroughly unworthy to be called your son. But the father knows it's a relationship that can't be broken. You're my son. I'm your father. And he restores him immediately. So Isaiah's first appeal is, or his first, his first bit of hope is, no matter how bad we are, it doesn't change the fact that you are our father. And though we are the clay, you're our potter. You're our potter. And he's praying back a concept back in chapter 45, which since it's on the screen, why don't you flip back to chapter 45. This is something that uh, the Lord revealed about a relationship between a potter and clay. Isaiah is recognizing this. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I can show you other passages in Isaiah where the Lord says, You're the work of my hands. Isaiah is casting himself upon the mercy of the Lord. We're clay. We can't change our situation. I can't eliminate my sin. I can't make a New Year's resolution so strong I seek God wholly and entirely the rest of my days. It's not going to happen. And Isaiah now casts himself on the mercy and the grace of God. You're our father. You're the potter. If change is going to take place, it starts with God, not with me. And God sees this process through. Isaiah throws himself, we would say it, he throws himself on the mercy of the court. And then the third relationship at the very end. We are all your people. Why are they his people? Because the Lord chose them. Not because they were better than any other people. They weren't more numerous. They weren't more wise. They weren't more inventive. Isaiah says, I chose... Or uh, Deut- Moses says in Deuteronomy, I chose you to be my people, my special treasure among all the peoples of the earth. Isaiah's counting on what the Lord did. It's grace. We're your people. You're our father. That can't change. And because those things are true, Isaiah makes an appeal. He makes a request in verse 9. First, don't be so terribly angry. Second, remember not iniquity forever. And then behold, please look. We are all your people. Again, you've got this behold. I know if we just look at ourselves, it's not pretty. But behold, we're your people. You chose us. You called us. You gave us uh, all that we have. We're your people, for better or worse. And that's Isaiah's only hope. Isaiah's only hope. 10 to 12, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Now what's interesting about verses 10 to 12, uh, those that are uh, cast doubt on the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture, uh, 
those that are considered liberal theologians, they look at verses 10 to 12 and they, and they read that as, this is proof Isaiah, there was more than one Isaiah. Because Isaiah lived roughly 700 B.C. The temple in Jerusalem isn't destroyed until more than 100 years later, 586 B.C. And so Isaiah couldn't have written this because he's describing Jerusalem being desolate, God's beautiful house being burned by fire, which is exactly what happened in 586 B.C. But if you believe Isaiah is a prophet and the Lord can reveal to Isaiah exactly what's going to take place, then Isaiah wrote it down. Though in Isaiah's day, it's not what he saw. Jerusalem looked pretty good. And the people's hope was in that temple. So that when Jeremiah came along, when Jeremiah is prophesying judgment on Jerusalem and the temple, the people in, in Jerusalem are going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord could never happen. We've got God's temple. Isaiah talked about a day when the temple's desolate and destroyed, burned by fire. And that's because he's a prophet. And scripture is inspired. And then it ends with questions. Will you restrain yourself at at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? It ends, the lament ends with more questions. The answer comes in the next two chapters. In fact, the Lord doesn't restrain himself. In fact, the Lord does not keep silent. But Isaiah doesn't get exactly what he wants when he wants it. But the Lord does, in fact, answer Isaiah's lament. And it's a beautiful answer moving forward. What are your comments and questions from 64? Carrie. Uh, when he says, you're our father? Yeah. Well, I think probably, I mean, thinking even in, that's a good question. Even in Jesus' day, remember when Jesus is engaging in, uh, I don't know, it's more than dialogue, but he's, uh, he's, there's a combative relationship between him and the Jewish leaders. And, and Jesus says, your father is the devil. And they're like, that's not our We have no father but God. You know, our father is Abraham and our father is God. So I think the Jews commonly claimed God as their father, though they themselves had no recognition of their own sin. So Isaiah's calling out with an awareness of sin, and our only hope is that God is our father, and we're his people. And if something's going to change, it's going to come from God. Most Jews were not, did not have that. They weren't. Uh, calling out to God as their father that way. Isaiah is. Somebody else? Henry. Well, the only, I mean, in, in that more particular sense, that particular case, Israel is only Israel because the Lord has formed them. If, if it had not been for the Lord forming and fashioning Israel to be who they are up to that point, they would have lost existence long ago. They would have been destroyed long ago by all the nations that hated them around them. Just like I would say today, Israel is, is uh, one little speck of land in the midst of a sea of nations that hate Israel and would love nothing more than to see Israel wiped off the face of God's earth. But it will never happen because they're his people. And, and, it, and 
And Israel exists to this day as they are because the Lord has fashioned them for this day and this time. Um, I mean, that reminds me of an old story, sort of, in a way. It's interesting. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Messianic Jew. He's a, a, of Jewish descent. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's very credentialed. Um, he's written a good number of books, some of which especially some chapters, are positively fascinating. Way back in the 1970s, he came to Decatur. Uh, when he was very young, he was probably didn't have much in the way of degrees at that point. So he came to Decatur. He spoke at Oriana Baptist Church as a Messianic Jew. And, and Oriana was actually doing really well at that time. And so they, they were advertising Arnold Fruchtenbaum, this Jewish believer speaking at our church. And one of the message titles that got advertised was uh, this title, How to Get Rid of the Jews. And it created quite a fervor in Decatur, uh, because back then also the Jewish synagogue was going fairly well, and they found it very inflammatory to have somebody come in with a message title, How to Get Rid of the Jews. And his answer was, you can't. And really, if you want a great passage for that, I mean, there are several places in Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah 31 and also 33. This was the basis of Arnold Fruchtenbaum's message, Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 reads this way. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, if the sun disappears, if the moon's gone, if if the starry heavens, if all of that disappears, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease to be Uh, from being a nation from before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, it can't happen. You'll never measure the heavens. You'll never explore the depths of the earth. Those things are impossible for man to do. Therefore, Israel will always be his people. According to Jeremiah 31, it's repeated in Jeremiah chapter 33. Arnold Fruchtenbaum taught it. It didn't go over so well. It did in the church, but it didn't in the community. Somebody else? All right. This is an easy transition over to the Lord's Supper. When Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering that we are sinners in need of grace. And the only reason why we can call ourselves the people of God, children of God, sons and daughters of God, the only reason why we can call ourselves forgiven is because of what God has done, not because of what we've done. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. What has He done? Christ came and gave His body. He gave His life. He shed His blood. He's the one that perfectly obeyed the Father so that the Father completely delights in Him and that is transferred to those who believe in Him. Those who put their hope and their confidence and their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's a wonderful celebration, but it came at great cost. 